Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Church. Uh, my name is Tom. I am one of the teaching pastors here. If you uh, do not have a Bible, uh, you can look around. There should be one uh, on the seat back in front of you, a hardback black Bible. If you do not have a Bible, please consider that our gift to you this morning. Uh, you're going to need that because here at Trinity Church, we practice a style of preaching called expository preaching. In my opinion, there is no other style of preaching that is actually faithful to God's Word because expository preaching says we're going to open up God's Word, we're going to try to understand what it meant to its original hearers, and that's going to be what it says. We're going to let the Word speak for itself. Um, I've had the privilege of opening up God's Word about once a month here for us for the past year, and I am very sorry to say that this will be my last sermon as a pastor in this church. Um, so I, I approach this with great joy as always, but also with a heavy heart. Like so many things, I think our culture has some interesting but ultimately incorrect views about the topic of prayer. If you listen for the mention of this word in popular media, uh, you're going to hear what I, think, what I think I mean. In the classic 80s ballad by Bon Jovi, Living on a Prayer, from whence the sermon title comes, prayer signifies a weak, faint fragile hope. It's something to cling to as an absolute last resort. It is of dubious value at best. The expression, on a wing and a prayer, similarly conveys the idea of prayer being something insubstantial, weak, fragile, that you can't rely upon. As does the expression that we apply to a person truly without hope when we say that they haven't got a prayer. Prayer sounds like the, the absolute weakest, the barest shred of hope, the last thing somebody would do when they're all out of other options. The most humorous example that came to my mind this week as I was preparing was from the great early 2000s cartoon show, Futurama. Don't, don't judge me, you all watched it too. When the crew of the interstellar delivery ship Planet Express is looking for a lost colleague, they come to the end of their rope, and they go to a certain religious group for help. As an aside, this religious group's central tenet is that you find God by looking for him through the cosmos with a gargantuan telescope. So they go to this religious group with this problem, and they ask for their assistance, and they discuss the problem, and, and the crew says, well, how can you help us? And the, the leader of the religious group says, well, why don't we all come together for a time of prayer? And the crew responds, is there anything we can do that will actually make a difference? And the religious leader says, no. And perhaps that is your view of prayer, explicitly or implicitly. Maybe you are not a Christian and you think that prayer, at best, has a kind of meditative value, a kind of relaxation value, almost like a form of meditation. You can clear your mind, you can kind of become one with the cosmos and, and kind of calm down that way. Maybe if you're a Christian, prayer is predominantly something for you to feel guilty about, something that you know you ought to do more. Tomorrow morning, you'll get up a little bit earlier and do it, but you never quite get around to it. Or, or maybe prayer is something that you try not to fall asleep during at your community group meeting. The Bible portrays prayer as an awesome, power-packed thing. It is an encounter with the living God, whereby we do not only present our, our needs repent of our sins, offer praise and thanksgiving, but it's actually a place where God meets us and changes us, where he hears and he acts. And in Daniel 9, 1 through 19, we have a lengthy prayer by the titular character of this book. It is prompted by the terrible sins committed by the nation of Israel, which led to a dreadful outpouring of God's wrath in the form of exile and the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. But when Daniel discerns from the scriptures that the time has come for God to restore his people at last, he begins to pray. And as we examine the setting, situation, and supplication of this prayer, we will see that in spite of Israel's faithlessness, their faithful Lord stands ready to forgive and restore. So read with me, if you would, Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. 
I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belong righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, to those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it was written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our, our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O Lord, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is God's word for us this morning. Let us pray. Father God, as we come before this prayer that Daniel offered to you, confessing specific sins, Father, in a specific time, let us nevertheless see your readiness to hear and forgive at all times and all places those who will call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, would you give us eyes to see what are your promises? Give us faith to believe those promises and give us a deeper and deeper love for your son this morning that we might do all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. As we examine this lengthy prayer of Daniel's, let us first consider the setting, sackcloth and ashes. The chapter begins, as most do in Daniel, by telling us what year it is based on which king it is. And you've probably noticed that Daniel jumps around quite a bit. The first four chapters dealt with the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 5 introduces Belshazzar. Chapter 6, it's Darius. Chapter 7 and 8 go back to Belshazzar's reign, and now we're back to Darius's reign again. It's a significant time. This is the time when the Babylonians lost Babylon. We read back in Daniel chapter 5 that because of Belshazzar's sins, he would be killed and the kingdom would be given over to the Medes and the Persians. And that's exactly what has happened. Belshazzar has been thrown down and Darius has taken his place. And it's significant because at this time, Israel was still in captivity. The exile was still going on. And they've seen their God show a measure of his faithfulness and his sovereign control over the nations by throwing down their oppressor, 
Belshazzar, who, who mocked God, who was drinking out of the temple vessels at a party for his rulers. God has thrown him down, and he has installed this Darius the Mede in his place. And this turn of events is perhaps what prompts Daniel to look to the books in verse 2. Verse 2 says that he perceived in the books, that is, the books of what became the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. And what's going on here? It helps to know the kind of literature that we are dealing with. And we can take this section as almost like a midrash, a kind of commentary on a specific text of Scripture. Specifically, Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 through 14. You can turn there or I'll read it for us. Jeremiah 25, 8 through 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, familiar name there, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring, against the, bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves, even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands." And this is exactly what has happened. Israel has been faithless to the Lord. The Lord has punished them. He has sent Nebuchadnezzar to judge them, to destroy Jerusalem, to carry the people away into exile. And that is why Daniel is in Babylon. And this time period of exile is going to last 70 years, Jeremiah says. Now, there's a lot of debate among scholars as to what the 70 years actually was, because there's a couple of different ways you can figure it. It could be from the initial period of exile in 606 to the decree of Cyrus in 537, which allowed the people to go back to Jerusalem. Or it could be the destruction of the temple in 586 to the completion of rebuilding under Ezra in 516. And 70 years is a very powerfully symbolic number. It is the number of a human lifespan, according to the Psalms. And so it could simply be a figurative number indicating that the period of Israel's exile was going to last one human lifetime. Based on the year, which was most likely around 537, it seems that Daniel at least is interpreting this as being the end of the 70 years. The time period is up. It is time for God to begin to act to remove these desolations from Jerusalem. Now, I think when we hear that God has promised to do something, we interpret that as meaning we don't need to do anything else. If God has said he is going to reverse the curse on Jerusalem, he is going to bring his people back from exile, I think that we would treat this as a spectator sport. You know, put on your jersey, invite your friends over, get out the chips and dip, and just kick back and wait for the show to start. Because if God has said he's going to do it, what do we need to do, Right? But that is not what Daniel does. His response to prophecy is prayer. Verse 3, it says, I, Daniel, turned my face to the Lord God. He, he probably almost literally did this. If you recall back in chapter 6, Daniel's habit was to open up the windows and pray three times a day facing the ruins of the temple in Jerusalem. So most likely he is doing that again. He is literally looking at the land that God promised to make his dwelling in, the land that has been devastated by the Babylonians and praying this prayer. And why would he do that? Well, we've mentioned it before, but the temple was much, much more than just a church building, right? I, I mean, if the chapel were to burn down, we'd probably all be a little bit bummed, especially if we were in it at the time. 
But this is so much more significant. There is an entire book of the Bible, the book of Lamentations, that is all about mourning the loss of the temple. Because the temple is the place where God promised to meet with his people. It would be the locus of his presence on earth. It's ultimately a foretaste of heaven where we will spend eternity living with the Lord God. And so the loss of the temple is almost tantamount to the loss of God himself. It is unfathomably painful for this people. And we see this pain and sorrow reflected in verse 3. It says that Daniel was seeking God by prayer and pleas for mercy. And this is almost a summary of the entire prayer right here. It reflects the loss of the temple and of Jerusalem and of the exile. It reflects that all those things are the result of Israel's sin and God's just judgment on that sin. And it can only be reversed by seeking God's face and God's mercy. And even though God has promised to do this in Jeremiah 25, he has promised to show mercy. Daniel is seeking that mercy in prayers and pleas. And he's seeking it in total humility, verse 3 says, by fasting, by putting on ashes and sackcloth. These are signs throughout Scripture of humility, of repentance. Fasting means no food from sundown one day until sundown the next day, at least. Ashes and sackcloth means that you look dirty, sooty, unkempt, unpresentable, like you are in mourning for the dead, which he is. He is mourning for the loss of Jerusalem, mourning for the loss of the temple, mourning for the loss of the people of God, and mourning perhaps most of all for the unbroken covenantal relationship that they enjoyed with God while they were in the land. Sin has since fractured that relationship. And it is mourning for that, in that spirit that Daniel prays and pleads with God for mercy. This is the setting of Daniel's prayer. In exile, but with hope on the horizon, he puts on sackcloth and ashes and begins to pray that at long last God would reverse the judgment on Jerusalem and show mercy to his exiled people. That is how Daniel responds to God's word in Scripture, specifically Jeremiah 25. How are you responding to God's word this morning? If you would not consider yourself a follower of Christ, we welcome you here. We're grateful and thankful that you would come here, that you would join us in singing and praying to a God that we cannot see. But I want to be clear from the outset that what I am saying this morning demands your response. I'm not up here to tell you what I think. I'm not up here to entertain, obviously. I'm not up here to give us all something to do while we take a break from our kids down the hill at Trinity Kids. No, I am here to tell you what God is, has said and what God is saying to you right now in his word. And that divine speech demands response from you. Maybe it will mean that you stay behind today and ask questions. Maybe it will mean that you turn from your sins and place your faith and trust in Jesus, as I urge you to do. Maybe it will mean that you leave here angry and you promise that you will never come back to this place ever again. But what you cannot do is listen to God speak and then take no action. The God of heaven and earth is speaking this morning in his word and his word demands a response from you. And if you have been rescued from your sins by Jesus Christ and are seeking to follow him as your disciple, how are you responding to his word today? Are you here to be entertained? Are you here out of habit? Are you here to be affirmed in what you already believe and think and know? How are you responding the rest of the week as you open up the Bible on your own? Do you approach it as a, a duty, a drudgery? a box to check on your way to other things during the day? Or do you approach God's word with the attitude of young Samuel? Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Let me ask you this too. Is there room in your walk with Christ for prayers like this? Prayers made while mourning your sin or the sins of others. Prayers made while fasting in sackcloth and ashes, maybe figuratively, maybe literally. 
Prayers and pleas that God would show mercy to you or to another or to this world. Prayers and pleas that God would save lost souls and grow those who have fled to him for salvation. His people who were always tempted to wander, that he would grow them towards greater and greater holiness and Christ-likeness. If you find that there is no room in your walk with Christ for prayers like this, make room. Take time on your own with your community group to pray prayers of mourning, of confession, of pleading with God to have mercy in some area. This prayer of Daniel arises from a painful setting, an exiled Jew sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it is prompted by an even more painful situation. Israel's faithlessness, but Yahweh's faithfulness. As we get into the prayer itself, we see that it contains elements of adoration, confession, and supplication. It is dominated by adoration, but even more so by confession. The prayer sets up a sharp contrast between Yahweh's faithfulness to his people on the one hand and his people's faithlessness on the other. It is clear that there has been a rupture in this relationship, and it is equally clear that it is Israel's fault, not the Lord's. Let us look at how Daniel begins to describe Yahweh in this section. He is the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We sometimes imagine that God's awesome power and sovereignty are somehow incompatible or in tension with his tender love and mercy. But Daniel knows nothing of this. If anything, God's greatness and God's majesty are enhanced by the fact that he is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. But contrast this with Israel's conduct. Daniel doesn't pull any punches here in the slightest. He says, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly, rebelled, turned aside from God's commandments and rules. And, And you notice, this is not a solitary or individual confession. This is not just Daniel saying, I have done these things. This is Daniel saying that we have done these things. This is a corporate act of repentance. We sometimes think that sin is totally individualistic, solitary. One person commits a sin, and that one person needs on their own to repent before the Lord and be forgiven. And that is certainly true that we have much to confess and repent of and be forgiven of on our own. But there's much more to it. Daniel, the Old Testament and New Testament alike affirm that sin is almost never done in isolation. Sin is like misery. It loves company. Loves to get other people to go along with it. Loves to get other people either committing the same sin or to look the other way or enable sin in some way. And it doesn't stop there. Because the more people get drawn in, the more and more sin can take on a life of its own. One person might say to his buddies, hey, why don't we go down the street and rob a liquor store? And then his buddy comes in and says, hey, while we're at it, why don't don't we beat up the cashier too? He looks at me funny. And then one more says, well, you know, while we're at it, why don't we smash the windows too? And another chimes in, and another, and another. And before you know it, this herd mentality takes over, and the sin of the group becomes greater than the sum of its parts. And after the robbery, I guarantee you every single person there would say, I I was just going along with the group. It was everybody else's idea. That's the way that sin works in groups. And so it is, while it is entirely good and right and necessary for us to, in, to repent of individual sins, we also need to be aware of how we can become complicit in the sins of others. Now, there is a huge debate right now in the church about this with regards to racism. And there are many in the church who want to say that racism is only ever an individualistic sin, and that it can never be pervasive, it can never be cultural, it can never be systematic, and that there can never be a need for groups of people at large to collectively repent of this. But it's just not the case. Because if I tell a racist joke, and then Alex starts laughing at it, that can encourage Todd, who overhears it, to chime in with one of his own and so on and so forth, and until while one, neither of us might harbor any kind of active 
malice towards people of other races. We have jointly acted so that we've created an atmosphere where people of other races don't feel valued, where they are not treated as image bearers, where they are not treated as being made in the image and likeness of God. And that is something that I and Alex and Todd in this example don't need to just repent of individualistically. We need to repent of it as a group. Daniel was a young man when Jerusalem fell. He could not have possibly committed all of the sins that he mentions in this prayer. And he even says in verse 6 that we have not listened to the prophets. And he lists kings, princes, other people in the land. He even lists their ancestors. Jerusalem didn't fall just because of the sins of the people at that time. It fell because of the sins of previous generations as well. But this makes no difference to Daniel. He is part of Israel. He is part of the people of God. And they have sinned, yes, individually, but they have sinned collectively as well. And his prayer of confession is a collective one. It is one that we would do well to heed as our example. And there are New Testament examples of this as well. Paul commands the Corinthian church to repent as a group. Jesus, to to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.19, says, You collectively repent. Collective sins require collective and not just individualistic repentance. The result of collective sin in Israel's history becomes clear in verses 7 and 8. Daniel introduces the contrast between the possessions of Israel and of Yahweh. To Yahweh, as the faithful keeper of the covenant, belongs righteousness. But to Israel, the covenant breaker, belongs open shame. And this shame falls on them, not just in Jerusalem, but in all of Israel, and to all who are both near and far. An echo of the book of Exodus that refers to the entire nation. It even falls on those who are in exile, in the lands that God has driven them against for their sins against him. And the shame transcends all barriers. It applies to the rulers. It applies to the common people. It applies to the living. It applies to the dead as well. The people share collective guilt for the rebellion against God, and so they share collective shame for the consequences of that rebellion, regardless of their physical proximity to Jerusalem and the temple. And yet in verse 9, For the first time, we have a glimmer of hope. Verse 4 had invoked Yahweh's faithfulness of the covenant. And over and over again, we have seen Israel is faithless. God is good, but that is no help to people who are bad. But here, in verse 9, Daniel invokes Yahweh's mercy and forgiveness. Though Israel has rebelled against God and, verse 10 says, has not obeyed his voice or his law, there is hope for this relationship. There is hope for the covenant. And that hope is 100% from the Lord and 0% from his people. There is a popular preacher who I've heard say, do what you can do and then trust God to do what only he can do. And I actually think that that is wonderful advice, provided we understand it rightly. Because there is nothing that you can do apart from the enabling grace of God. Daniel has made clear and will make clearer still that shame and disobedience and faithlessness belong to the people, but that steadfast love and mercy and forgiveness belong to Yahweh. They can do nothing. The only thing that they can do is see that there is nothing that they can do and trust Yahweh to do what only he can do, which is everything that needs to be done. In that inability, in that need for forgiveness, we come to verses 11 through 15. We see in verse 11 that not only has Israel transgressed the law, not only have they turned aside, not only have they refused to obey the voice of the Lord and brought upon themselves open shame, they have in fact come under a curse. You see, at the founding of the nation of Israel... After God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt so that they would be his people, his treasured possession, after that, mind you, not not before, but after that, after he had saved them, he made a covenant with them. He stipulated certain blessings that would follow obedience and certain curses that would follow disobedience. So again, want to be as clear as I can. This is not obedience to get into the covenant. This is obedience once you're in the covenant, after you've been saved in their context. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verses 15 to 19. 
It says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. This goes on for quite a while. If you would skip with me down to verse 63. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite." And there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Hard words. Part of the constitution of Israel, if you will. And a cursory read-through of the Old Testament shows that Israel spent more or less their entire history, about 600 years at this point, basically ignoring this word from God. As a consequence, the promised curses finally came on them. Verses 12 and 13 of Daniel chapter 9 affirm this, that the Lord has confirmed his word. He has done exactly what he said he would do in the law of Moses, in doing what he did by destroying Jerusalem and bringing calamity upon the entire nation. Now, if this sounds harsh to us, it's perhaps because we imagine Yahweh here like a bully, coming along to Israel, who are just minding their own business and pouring out disaster and destruction and death on them while they cry for help and cry for mercy. But that is just not the case. Because verse 13 says that while all this was going on, Israel never repented. They didn't turn from their sins. They didn't ask God for forgiveness. They didn't ask God to help them turn back to keeping the law. The curses started and they stayed the course with disobedience and sin. While this was going on, while God is pouring out judgment, they're not asking for forgiveness. They're asking for more curses. And this is perhaps the reason that Daniel, in verse 14, declares that the Lord who saved up all this calamity for his disobedient people over the centuries and finally poured it out on Daniel's generation, that this Lord is righteous in all the works that he has done. Ponder that for a moment. Daniel looks at his people. No nation, no city, no temple, scattered among the nations, their lives at risk every day, as we've seen in this book. And he looks back over the history of his people, their sinful disregard of the Lord their God, never turning back to him, never turning away from their wicked ways. All the while, Yahweh has been faithful and patient, and Daniel was out of excuses. He could only affirm that all of what Yahweh has done in judging his people is righteous. But he strikes another note of hope there in verse 15. For this same Lord who has visited all this disaster among his people is the Lord who brought his people out of Egypt, who made a name for himself, who has the same name that day. He is famous for the love of his people and his power to save. And in this view of God, in view of his promises, in view of his history of saving his people, there is hope that now is the time he will act to restore his people and end the exile. Daniel offers a final, all-encompassing confession. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. We, your people, are turning from our sins and back to you at long last. Daniel, praying on behalf of the exiled generation of Israelites and in a sense praying on behalf of all Israel since the Exodus is finally coming clean. Do you see your need to come clean before God this morning? Without coming clean, 
Without confession and repentance, there can be no forgiveness. There can be no restoration of your relationship. I've seen this vividly with our four-year-old Naomi. Most of the time when she sins, one of us catches her red-handed. We catch her in the act of doing it, and there's really no question about what has happened or what she has done. But, but here lately, she has discovered something, that if she does something, and we don't see it, but we later find the consequences and ask her about it, she can lie. She can lie and say that she didn't do it, that somebody else did it, and try to avoid the consequences of her action. Now, when she does that, I usually can tell that she is lying. Like, I can tell that the wall did not draw on itself with crayons. I know that nobody else has been in her room that day, that she is the one who did it. But while I am sitting there asking her about what happened and she is lying to me and telling me she didn't do it, it is a roadblock. It is a roadblock, yes, to her receiving the discipline that is coming to her for what she has done, but it is also a roadblock to my forgiving her and restoring our relationship. When we won't deal with sin, when we won't come clean, all it does is delay God's restoration and God's forgiveness of us. Do you see that you need to come clean before God? Do you see where you need to do that? If you are a Christ follower, this still applies to you. We who have known the grace of God the longest can be the most forgetful when it comes to how much we need this grace. We can become afraid to need this grace. And it might just be my experience, but I find myself worrying that if I need too much grace, too much forgiveness, if I have to repent too often, too many times in the one day, that it means that something is up. Maybe what Martin Luther called the great exchange, where Christ takes my perfect wretchedness on the cross and I receive in its place his perfect righteousness, maybe that didn't go through somehow if I have to repent too many times, if I need too much grace. Now, don't get me wrong. Being made one with Christ by grace through faith is going to change your behavior, and if it doesn't, you might be well served to test yourself to see if you are in the faith. But the test is not sinless perfection. It isn't that you need to repent less and less each day, but it's that you find yourself repenting of more and more each day that you become more aware of how much sin is in your life and you rely less and less on your goodness and more and more on the goodness of Christ. Do you see that you need to come clean before God? Is there some pet sin that you're afraid to confess? Some habitual sin that you don't really want to call sin? Because if it's a sin, then, then you're a sinner and to a much greater degree than you'd like to admit. Do you see that you need to come clean before God for corporate sins as well? Let me be clear that this does not mean that you are literally repenting for something that somebody else did. Like, I can't literally repent of the fact that DJ has not seen Casablanca or The Godfather. But it means that you repent of the sins by which you enable the sins of others, by what you have done or by what you have failed to do. It means that you repent of perpetuating a certain kind of culture that fails to give God the glory that he deserves, whether by action or by inaction. I'm talking about subtle sins on your part that have a big effect when pooled with the sins of others. Inasmuch as your home, your workplace, and even this very church fails to be a place that glorifies God in all things and fails to be a place where your neighbors are indiscriminately loved with the love of Christ, you have something to repent of. And if that stings, if that offends you, if that makes you uncomfortable, I want you to consider the fact that every moment of every day that you are not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself, you are in sin. You are falling short of the glory of God. You need the free grace of Christ in that moment and every moment. And you would not need the free grace of Christ one drop less if you were merely guilty of individualistic sins and not corporate sin as well. Don't let the fact that it requires repentance blind you to that. The fact is, brothers and sisters, we, like Daniel, like the Israelites, have done wickedly. 
We have been faithless, and Yahweh has been faithful. And it is on the basis of that faithfulness that we, like Daniel, can make our supplication that Yahweh would hear and act. Daniel makes this supplication, first of all, on the basis of Yahweh's righteous acts, which calls our attention back to verse 15 and the Exodus, the singular saving event of the Old Testament. He is essentially asking God to undertake a second exodus here, not just to restore the people from captivity in the land and back to Israel, but to take them again to be his chosen people. He is saying, God, who once acted this way, please come and act this way again. Essentially, he is praying God's own character back to him. Does it again in verse 17 when he says, God, please act for your own namesake. Verse 18, God, act for the sake of Jerusalem that is called by your name, the city of the Lord, the city of your chosen people. And finally, verse 19, God, act for your own sake because city and people alike are called by your name. If you were here last week, you'll remember how Eric pointed out to us that God does everything for his own glory. According to Jonathan Edwards, that is the end to which God created the entire world for his glory. And if that is the end to which God does everything, you might be well served by invoking God's priorities in prayer. God, act that you might receive glory. And and don't think for a moment that this is manipulative somehow. I dare you to try this. Pray honestly for God to act in some way that you like and that he would do so for his glory. And I guarantee you the Holy Spirit is not going to allow you to pray this flippantly. You will not be able to pray that God would bless your sports team with a victory for God's glory. I think that you will find that you begin to pray more God-glorifying prayers and praying for things to happen so that God would be glorified. This will change the way you pray and what you pray for. And I think that you'll ultimately still pray for what you really need because God is glorified in doing good for his people. They are bound up together. That is why the most God-glorifying event in all of human history, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, is also the event that brings us the most good. Because God acts for our good and his glory simultaneously. So it is far from manipulative for you and I to pray, as Daniel does here, that God would act for the sake of his name and the sake of his glory. And what Daniel prays for is unquestionably a God-glorifying end here in verse 16. Let your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. Verse 17, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. I love that imagery there. God's grace and favor aren't just pleasant circumstances that he kind of lobs at us from afar, but it is his face shining upon us, his people. Daniel is asking for God's anger and God's wrath to be turned away from the city. Somehow, this seems to come up in every single text I preach. So I've said it before, and I'll just say it again. God's wrath and God's anger against sin are intensely unpopular topics that are also thoroughly biblical. Old Testament and New Testament alike affirm that God's wrath is poured out on sin and your only way of escaping from the wrath of God is Jesus rescuing you. Jesus opening your eyes to your peril. Jesus giving you the grace to flee to him in faith and repentance. Don't believe me? Think that the Jesus you've heard about only ever talked about love, never talked about wrath. John 3.36 this is, this is Jesus speaking, red, letters, red letter words here. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Preachers today are afraid of being mocked as turn or burn hicks. And I am humble enough to admit that I am proud enough to not want this applied to me. And I promise you, if there was some kind of a faithful biblical argument to be made 
that God is not angry at sin, not full of wrath, and that you don't need to turn in faith and repentance to him or spend eternity in hell, believe me, I'd be on board with that. I would love that to be true. But it is not to be found in the pages of Scripture. And if you've heard that taught from Scripture, someone is lying to you. God is full of wrath against sin. Our only hope as human beings is for him to act for his namesake, for his glory, and to save us in Christ Jesus. Daniel, praying centuries before Christ, saw this reality, though dimly. He recognized that because of the iniquities of our fathers, verse 16, their only hope is the faithfulness of God. And in verse 17, he makes his prayer and pleas for God's mercy, but, verse 18 says, he does not present his plea out of any confidence in his own righteousness, but only because of God's great love and mercy. His only hope is that God, out of his sheer grace and kindness, verse 19, will hear, forgive, pay attention, and act, and that without delay. And it is worth remembering at this point that none of this was done on Daniel's own initiative. We've seen time and time again in this book that it is the Lord who is in control of the rise and fall of nations. He is sovereign over what happened in Egypt and the Exodus. He was sovereign over Israel in Canaan and in the exile. He remains sovereign over Israel here in Babylon, including over Daniel. Daniel isn't suddenly in charge of the story. Rather, he is responding to God's act of judgment on Jerusalem as well as his promise of restoration found in his word. And this word was not and is not for Daniel alone. For the Lord who promised to pour out his wrath on Jerusalem and yet restore them 70 years later did not let his promises stop there. This God promised that not only would he restore the people to the land, but he would restore the temple and the priesthood. He would restore the prophetic ministry, and he would above all restore the kingly line of David. And he has done all this and more. He has kept his promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus that the kingly line of David is restored, for he is the king who will reign forever and forever and forever. It is in Jesus that the prophetic ministry is restored, for he is the very living and active word of God. It is in Jesus that the temple and the priesthood are restored, for he offered a perfect sacrifice in the temple of his body by dying on the cross for our sins, and then he raised it and rebuilt it in three days, just as he had promised. And it is in Jesus that the people of God will finally have our true home, our true promised land, when he restores and brings heaven to earth, not just to Jerusalem, not just to Israel, but to the entire world and makes it to be what it was always meant to be. And you, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, will reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth with him as your perfect prophet, priest, and king forever. Never and ever. Do you have this as your hope today? That the Lord will hear your prayers in Christ's name and act. When you pray, do you pray expecting God to hear? Expecting him to act on what you pray? If not, it could be that you doubt whether you are praying a prayer he delights to answer. Daniel here is essentially praying God's own character and God's own word back to him. Is that your habit? Do your prayers consist solely of your own wants, your own needs, your own cares, perhaps those of the people that you know intimately? Or are you allowing your meditation upon God's word to overflow into your prayer life so that you pray prayers consistent with God's word and God's character? And, and what do you do after you've prayed? Do you then go after praying God's word back to him and live in a way that is contrary to God's word? Let me make it as simple as I can. When is the last time you made a conscious effort to obey that most basic of Jesus' commands, to love unconditionally your neighbor as yourself? That you would see strangers, even enemies, as objects of neighborly love 
and seek to do good to them with no thought of getting anything in return. Your prayers and your life should reflect a hope in the Lord who hears and acts. This hope that the God who heard and acted when Daniel prayed is the same God who hears and acts when his church prays today. And that is the only reason that I have been able to stand in this place at Trinity Church for a year. It is the only reason that I am able to face the prospect of a new city and new ministry with joy, even as my eyes are filled with tears. For I have stood here solely and only because our sovereign Lord has taken pity on me, has opened my blind eyes to see my need for his grace, and has caused me to cry out for his mercy in Christ Jesus. And that is a prayer that he stood only too ready to hear and act to answer. In his good pleasure and in his good humor, he called me to preach his word, and he has seen fit to let me stand here for the past year with his gospel treasure in this jar of clay so that the surpassing worth of Christ would be displayed in my weakness. And I know that this same God will continue to hear and act even as my family and I bid farewell to this season of ministry and turn our faces to another. And I would ask your prayers to our Lord that he would bless us and keep us, that he would cause his face to shine upon us, that he would lift up his countenance to us and give us grace and peace. For I will certainly remember you in my prayers that the Lord would do the same for you and all that he would draw to be a part of this body. Let us pray. Great Father God, Lord, you have been so faithful and we, your people who are called by your name, are so often faithless. Lord, may we never hesitate to confess and to cry out to you afresh for mercy. Would we God, acknowledge our sins, our wickedness before you. Would we do so having no hope in our own righteousness, only hope, God, that you, for your glory, for your namesake, and because of the shed blood of Christ, that you would stand ready to hear and to act and to forgive. And God, would we pray prayers and live lives reflective of your character and your word. Lord, let our prayers... Be God for what you want to have happen in the world and in our lives. May our lives reflect what your word says you want to have happen. And God, as, as this body continues to meet and to continues to minister, Lord, to Oldham County and to Crestwood, and as my family packs up and goes, Father, would you have your hand on all of us and use us in mighty ways, Lord, to advance your kingdom. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.